0: It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in, because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. At Outdoor Research, it's not about summits. It's not about finish lines or sends. It's about the journey. Achievement is important. It helps keep our drive alive and our stoke high. But those moments are fleeting exclamation marks on our experiences. Outdoor Research understands that it's the hardship, the struggle, and the perseverance that makes us stronger. And they are committed to making gear and apparel that matches those values. Oh, our love, style, comfort, and fun as much as the next climber. But they know that when the giggles stop and the jaws of the Epic are snapping shut, your gear better damn well work. So when you're looking forward to that fun adventure that just might go south, remember that Outdoor Research will come along for the fun, but stay for the Epics. Check it all out at OutdoorResearch.com or your favorite local shop.
1: In The Republic, Plato presents an allegory of a cave in which prisoners have been shackled their whole lives, and their only understanding of reality derives from the shadows that are cast on the bleak cavern wall before them. It's a way to tackle the philosophical problem of how our own subjective experiences limit our understanding of reality, keeping us imprisoned in our own heads. I don't need to ever become a caver to know that the idea of plunging into the bowels of the earth sounds like an absolutely dreadful idea. I'm a climber. I like being out in the open, not closed in like going up, not down. Is there anything worse than rappelling? In my job as a full-time writer, part-time journalist, I've been covering various caving expeditions for National Geographic. I started out knowing nothing about caving, and while my understanding of the sport still places me very much at a Gumby level, I've been fascinated, dare I say impressed, by the commitment and adventure of some of today's leading caving explorers. I've always viewed caving as a low-grade cousin to our sacred sport of rock climbing. There are similarities, to be sure, We both use ropes and harnesses, and we both love to indiscriminately place bolts in virgin rock. And yet caving just seems so dreadful, so claustrophobic. Do they even train? And yet cavers seem to be just scratching the surface of exploration of the world's biggest, deepest, and most impressive caves. The state of caving right now seems to be where climbing was in the 1800s. A blank map ripe for the picking. And as I scroll through the latest newsfeed of climbing as a sport filled with the latest spray about the newest climber to do some route or mountain that was actually done before they were even born, I can't help but find myself drawn in, wondering what is real, or if everything I know about climbing is just a bunch of shadows on the wall. Before I do something crazy like trading my Scarpa Dragos and knee pads for a waterproof onesie and a 12 mil static line, I wanted to talk to my show co-host, Chris Kalous, who actually has some experience plundering the depths of the earth, and hear him talk me out of it. I'm Andrew bisharat the runout starts now. I was looking up the name of this cave, and uh, I'm on a nude beauty gallery instead. How did that happen? <laughs> I was trying to remember the name of this cave, and I, I don't. I thought it was Varykova, but that's taking me to nude beauty
0: gallery. Huh. My hot picks. Nice. <laughs> that must be. Is that woman named Vera Nikovna?
1: <sighs> Her name is Tatiana Varykova. <laughs> anyway, I love caving. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Oh, uh, the internet.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Verikovina is the deepest cave in the world. As of just six months ago, um, it overcame a cave right next to it called Krubera. Mm-hmm. All these, ca- the, the four deepest caves in the world are in this massif in, um, Georgia, the country. Oh, really? Um, actually, a part of Georgia whose name I can't pronounce. Uh-huh. It's like the eastern part. And, um, yeah, it's, so it's this massif. We're it's, talking
0: about. We're not talking about the state. No, not. No, we're talking about not the, Atlanta. The, uh, yeah, the former Soviet. Exactly. Country. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So the four deepest caves in in the world currently known are all there. They they go down to about seven thousand over seven thousand feet deep. Um, Krubera uh, was the deepest cave for a while, and that got um, bumped to second place by a team of Russian ex- cavers this spring who reached a depth of like 7,200 feet, 220 feet or something like that in in Veracovina. And I wrote about uh, a a recent expedition there in September that was just like a full-on epic that just completely fascinated me. But just to get into this, I mean, I've been writing about these caving expeditions, knowing nothing about the sport of caving. And it does have so much crossover with, with climbing. I know, I know you have some experience with caving, so I thought this could be just kind of a, an interesting topic to to see and just see where it goes, like a freewheeling Yeah, totally. Discussion.
0: Well, my, my experience with caving is is fairly limited. I was into it for a couple of years, shoot, 30 years ago, or no? Yeah, about, almost, almost 30 years ago. Was that before you ago. got into climbing? No, it was basically simultaneously. Um, I was in Fort Collins and going to school, and from the Midwest and just basically like any sort of crazy adventure type stuff. I was, I was drawn to it. And so the guys I started climbing with one of them uh, became friends with a guy named Larry Coates, who was a climber of note living in Boulder at the time. I think he's back in Arizona at this time. Um, Him and his brother Tim Coates were famous for developing a lot of climbing around Flagstaff and in Arizona, including Paradise Forks. And he was into it. And so I got drawn into it kind of, you know, once removed from that. And also another climber of note, Jim Erickson, uh, the famous 70s free climber, boulder based and still is also was super into it. And I think he still is super into it. And so for a couple of years, we were dividing our time between climbing and caving you know, weekends and things like that. And coming up to the White River National Forest and the flat tops here above Glenwood Springs long before I lived here. Mm. And, you know, the draw at the time was, was that same sort of exploration, you know, forging new ways that was drawing me to climbing at the time. You know, my motivations, I think, have changed quite a bit in climbing, but that was the same sort of thing. I was going to all these new places to climb. You know, to me... Long's Peak was this unexplored place to my mind, because I had never been there. And, you know, El Dorado was this unexplored place. And so that same like fun, you know, going into these unexplored places, at least to me felt really exciting and really fun. And I think the appeal of it was, I've always said, it's just like any kid who, goes out their backyard and through the fence into this place where they've never been and it's and you're on an exploration. You know, mm-hmm. that's that that kid thing where even if it was just like a little piece of woods in your neighborhood, you know, you were in there exploring. And the same appeal is in, in caving of wanting to find not only something you've never seen before, but then if you get really into it, it's just like first ascents with climbing where you want to be the person or the team that finds the next hidden thing, whether it's around the corner through that squeeze down that rope, you know, wherever it happens to be, you want to be the first one to lay eyes on this thing. And in a lot of caves, like you've been writing about the stuff you can see is otherworldly. You know, it's really this feeling of seeing things that no one else in the world can see. And these things that really are alien to you know the surface life, sure. with, in terms of formations, not not necessarily biologically, but in terms of the structures of these caves with the flowstone and the crystals and and all that sort of business.
1: So, uh, in the last week, I've written two stories about caving, very different stories. Uh, the first one is about a, a trip up Mount Rainier to explore the fumarole Caves on the summit crater. There's a network of caves inside the glacier. That have been formed by the volcanic gases escaping out of the the volcano of that is Mount Rainier. These caves are extremely dangerous. A lot of them have these carbon dioxide lakes and traps. You know these invisible lakes of carbon dioxide that settle into the bottom of the caves that you can't even see, of course, and you wouldn't necessarily know that you're in one in, until you feel as if you're suffocating. There, there's the geographical aspect of it of just mapping the cave out. They're doing some scientific uh, studies where they are um, looking at the these uh, extremophiles, which are these tiny microorganisms that l- feed off of the the volcanic gases, the fumarol gases, um, because these um, these microorganisms might provide a, a context for life to exist on some place like Mars, where this very similar environment exists. Um, and so that was fascinating to me. I mean, just the idea of ice caves and deadly gases and, you know, NASA ice climbing robots, you know, just like doing like science and exploration. And uh, I just thought that was really cool. And then the other trip, which, uh, I, I just wrote about is to this cave, very the new deepest cave in the world. And, uh, this, this story involved. I, I interviewed Robbie Schoen, who's a, a British caving photographer, who joined, he, and he, he's a climber as well, but he joined in on um, a, a Russian expedition to push the depths of this cave and photograph the, the, the terminus of, of where all the water goes down into, into the earth. And these guys, it takes four days for them to get down to the, the bottom camp. And They were camped there for about three days and they get a call from some teammates who are on their way out, up and out um, via a, a little wire saying that there was a flood pulse coming through and that they could expect to see it in about half an hour. Sure enough, half an hour later, they heard you know what described as like the, the freight train coming through. and um, just the most monumental wall of water just started pouring out of this funnel in the in the roof of the cave. And their camp was um, to the side of where this water was coming in, so they kind of and they were, you know, 200 feet above the the very bottom of where the of the cave itself. So they felt that they were kind of in the safest place possible. Um, they weren't getting wet from spray after about two hours of this flood pulse continuing to just gush into this, you know, down through the through the cave. One of the Russian guys looks over to this little hole in the ground near where their tent is, and he hears a gurgling noise. And just given how much water has been coming down, it sort of starts to concern them. He he alerts the team leader. The team leader is this guy named Pavel, just the most hardcore like Russian caving dude you can imagine. And he's he goes off to check a siphon to see how high the water table has gotten. He was gone about five minutes when they went and looked in that little hole by the tent and there was water coming up. It so fast that it was just like jostling off the sides of the hole. Everyone's faces went white and they were like, we need to leave right now. And so, um, you know, they get on their gear, you know, which takes 10 minutes or something. Robbie makes a decision to leave, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of, of photo equipment there because he just felt like it would slow him down. And there was 10 people down there or sorry, eight people. And he goes first, he he goes to a uh, traverse, which was formerly over this hole in the ground. That was about eight by 20 meters wide, which was now a complete lake. So it was just a foot above the water and gets to the, you know, the rope leading out of the cave and just starts jugging up through the flood pulse, you know, through the, through the waterfall coming down, And he described it as being like his head was being just pummeled into his shoulders and he had to keep his chin tucked close to his chest in order to create like a little vacuum for him himself to breathe. You know, the brim of his helmet Mm -hmm. shed water and created this little hole for him to, to get some air. And so he's jugging up and he gets to a point where, you know, he can kind of step outside of the, the waterfall and he's looking up at where the rope is going and it goes through what, what, is basically like a squeeze chimney with the water going through this squeeze chimney. And he just thought, you've got to be kidding me. I can't do this. But he said, you know, I have to do it because I can't stop here because all these other people need to get to where at least to where I am in order to live. And so again, he just put his head down inch at a time through this like raging (laughs) through you know, through the monster off with in like a gushing waterfall, jugging up a rope. Ultimately they get to a, a little spot where they're kind of out, out of the flood, and it's him and his photo assistant, Robbie and his photo assistant. At this point they have no idea if the Russians are alive or not. They think that they're probably dead. About fifteen minutes later, uh they start to see they see one headlight and um, one of the Russians comes up and they're like, "Oh my God, is there is are there people behind you?" And he's like, "I have no idea." And then it's like another fifteen minute long minutes, and then eventually each one of them managed to get out in time. The expedition leader went last, and um, that traverse I mentioned earlier by then was completely underwater. And just to get onto the rope to start jugging up, he I guess Pavel had to he got caught in an eddy and got pushed down stream into the depths of the cave and had you know fight for his life and swim through the eddy to get back onto the road he had to be russian he just had to like yeah. dig into
0: his russianness exactly and like claw his way to a rope well, as so only the a russian caver could possibly do
1: i mean the the yeah it's and and this is where the story leads is because they get to this this little intermittent intermittent camp um about 1300 meters underground and um there's a tent there and You know, within five minutes, the Russians are in the tent laughing, like, you know, brewing up coffee or tea or whatever, probably drinking vodka. And um, Robbie was so traumatized by this. He had he stood outside the tent with, uh, you know, one hand on an ascender on the rope ready to go. Looking down into the abyss to see if the water would, was coming up to where he was in the back of his mind, he was so freaked out because he knew above them there was another siphon that would have been completely underwater bottom line, if the water had come up to that camp, it would have been game over they would right. have all died um but they but they all managed to live um and a testament just only to their experience and their Russian-ness. their Russianness, yeah. yeah, I think this is probably a standard somewhat standard fair you know kind of caving epic story, but it just so happens that it's happening in whatever the, you know, the new Mount Everest of caving is the deepest right. cave in the world. Right. And uh, the fact that it's only recently been discovered that it is the deepest six months ago is, is just so interesting. There There's no equivalent in the sport of climbing. It would be as if we've been climbing Mount Everest for the last 50 years. And then all of a sudden, you know, we look back you know, one peak beyond it. And there's something that's like twice as big as it right. like, Oh shoot. Because, you know, you can't see what's underground. It feels like a frontier of exploration, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so too. And and again, the, the thrill of it for really hardcore cavers is that, and even here in Colorado and the the other part of my caving experience is I have, um, I have no vertical caving experience because there's almost no vertical caving in Colorado, which is where I was caving. Um, They're all crawly, squeezy, Climby kind of ones. It sounds so awful to me. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're also relatively dry because most of them are high altitude. But the, the, the idea is that not only is finding a new cave no one's ever found before, but also yeah, exploring ones that are there and finding virgin passage is what, what they call it. And that's really, you know, for hardcore cavers, it's what you do. And he, even here in Colorado, people would go and you'd have digs where you would all go into this cave and there's a place where, you know, you thought some stuff, some dirt or some rocks had fallen down into potential breakthrough to a new section of caves. And you'd, you'd all take turns crawling in there on your hands and knees and digging and pushing dirt out while the other people sort of found a way to clear the dirt and put it somewhere else, hoping that you would pop through. And one of the famous digs that turned into, you know, one of the more incredible caves in the world is Lechuguilla and, in, in. uh, New Mexico, where there had been this long time, you know, small cave where, you know, people would go in and dig or parties are going to dig and nothing would happen. And one guy apparently was in there on, you know, his time digging away. And all of a sudden wind, because of the, the differential in, in uh, air pressure in the cave versus outside, just started blowing in his face. Mm. And dirt started flying out of this hole where he, he had been digging. And he basically discovered one of the largest and in most incredible caves in, in, uh, in the U- United States, mm. which is still, you know, yielding you know discoveries of passage in a very difficult vertical cave as well. Um, so that's like, you know, the, the Everest of, of, right. of caving is to be the guy or the person or whatever to kick through to the ma- amazing discovery.
1: Caving's at the point of just exploration. You know, you have to go through this point of just, just like, baseline exploration just to see what's out there before you can maybe push difficulty or do something new.
0: And really the difficulty aside from the technical part of of depth of going up and down ropes which can always break, your gear can fail, all those sorts of things or the actual climbing that goes on in caves which is primarily aid climbing, you know, you're the putting in bolts and and you know getting your way up to some passage, some opening that you can see far up in some cave, but the real difficulty is the logistics of getting to the edges of what's already been explored in this case you said you know it takes a a few days to get down there to where the bottom of the cave is to where now we're going to look for the next way to make it even bigger and in some caves it involves days and days and days of traveling underground and then with the the teams you know oftentimes it's it really harkens back to this like expedition style in the mountains where You've got all this logistical support, team members that are only there to create logistical caches for mm-hmm. the team that's at the far end a few days in mm-hmm. exploring. And meanwhile, there's a whole team of people maintaining ropes and bringing gear in and bringing food in while these people down at the depths are are digging or climbing or doing whatever it takes to kind of move move the next thing forward. And the big danger, and again, I guess it's analogous to being you know, far afield in the mountains, especially as you said, like in the 1800s, is if you get hurt, break a leg that many days into a cave, you know, there's a lot that has to go into getting you out of there.
1: Right, because the hard part is actually getting out.
0: Yeah, is going to get someone who's got a broken limb or broken back or any of those sorts of things. And then the big danger of caving, as your story illustrated, has always been water. Mm. And when not only do they flood, but just exploring passages that have water flow in them and people getting trapped by water flow, whether it's just the pressure of the water pushing them in under and into a crack that they can't be pulled out of. Um, And the, the, the great, you know, terrifying story is that then you're blocking the passage of the water. And so, you know, like a stopper in the tub, you're, you're going to let it fill. And, you know, there's stories of people getting stuck and then, over the next few hours drowning because the water comes up and their partners can't get them out. And these sorts of things, I For mean, add reason, to your nightmares of, of what, what the horrible parts of caving are.
1: I, I just had, um, uh, a vision of, uh, the Willy Wonka movie where the, the fat kid gets, yeah, gets sucked, up, sucked, up, the sucked tube, up in the tube. tube and, and that used yeah. to scare the hell out of me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that movie's really scary. Oh, it's, it's We should do an episode on that. Yeah. A kid's no, film I mean, that's I, I was
1: five years old when I saw the the girl turn into a blueberry and I just started bawling. It still terrifies me to see that.
0: Yeah, well watch the uncut scene where they get on the boat and it starts oh, like going out of control yeah, and there's it's like, like these, an acid trip. Yeah, it's Yes, horrible, yeah. like bad acid trip. A total aside. But you know, I think I think that what you're you when you're talking about how dreadful it seems, you really are like again, you know, there's there's spore climbing and there's like horrible bad conditions mountaineering and you know within caving there certainly is that breadth of of things all the way down to like going on the cave tours here in glenwood where you're on a guided tour and on a path Mm -hmm. you know god forbid those kids like those kids in thailand get get trapped on one of those tours but a bunch of kids soccer kids in a cave anyway Mm -hmm. but you know there's that end of things and there's just you know pedestrian kind of like finding your own caves and you go in for a few minutes and, you know, they're, they're, you know, not that deep or not that far to get back to you. See a few still like tights and you come out like uh, Fulford cave up in Eagle County, you know, it's, it's kind of open to the public, but it's still sort of a wild cave um, all the way down to these massive expeditions that just like any expedition added danger, added logistical problems and only for the people who are like super heavy dedicated in into the sport.
1: See, just seeing that caving is just this frontier of, of adventure and exploration. There's some, there's just like this easy natu- natural interest in that, you know, and I think that's why I've been writing so many stories about it in the last year and very few of them, you know, there's very little that's sort of interesting on that sort of mainstream level in climbing, you know, aside from like Hanold Soling El Cap, which was of course covered widely, but you know, the, these caving stories are happening like, you know, every other month it seems like, uh, and
0: climbing. But do just, they get any more traction in the mainstream than I mean than no. anything else? I
1: mean, this is like a National Geographic thing, but but yeah. Do you see my point though? It's like what, what I I guess I always think, especially with these like sort of adventure sports. I always my my context is climbing, and so I compare everything to that. You know, even skiing like. When um there was that dude who was like doing like seeing how tall of a cliff he could jump off of. I mean, this guy was you know doing two hundred and twenty foot you know cliff jumps, and he was basically just landing on his back in the in powder, you know. And I felt like you needed to the climber in me was like you need to like stick the landing, you know. (laughs) What you did. I mean, you took, right? You, right, know, right. you you punted, right? Yeah, if you the don't anchors. like ski out of it, yeah. Then if you don't ski count. out of it, then it doesn't count. Like, you take know? your
0: skis off and just jump off. Well, skiers know?
1: have no qualms about that. Right. They're like, dude, just jumped off of a 220 foot cliff. Like, give him some respect. Um, but the climber in me, you know, right? So I'm always putting, um, I'm always comparing these sports and putting them within the the context and rules of that I know as a climber.
0: Well, I think. A big part of caving, and even though you're talking about these stories coming out here, is that even in in my experience, even more so than climbing was 30 years ago, it it was a very much uh i mean I, I like I'm, I'm about to use the worst pun ever, but you know to say it was underground <laughs> uh, I'm the first guy to ever do that, I bet too. Um, but anyway, but the, it, it was even more of a subculture and sort of a fringe culture than climbing. And it, I think it remains that way because let's face it, like you and I both have little kids and at least at one point in every little kid's life, a human's life, you climb, you know, you want to climb. Like that's a, a whole, basically a whole playground is premised on climbing. And I just don't think that that natural urge to like squirm underground is really there for human beings. And so it takes really, you know, Pavel, your guy in that story, like really interesting and kind of willingly different people. Mm. And when I was caving, the people who were really into it were very much eccentric, you know, strange people who were kind of like the nerds that were like, yeah, we know we're different and we want to be different and we don't necessarily want to share this with everybody.
1: Yeah. It seems very much more territorial even than climbing.
0: It was when I was into it. And in fact, that's one of the reasons we stopped, you know, I won't get into it too deep, but yeah, it just felt like there was, you know, you had to kind of another pun navigate, uh, (laughs) what? Uh, thanks. No you lost my <laughs> But it, it felt like it felt like it was a really difficult sort of community to navigate and to know to get information. Even even if you were a bona fide like member of what were called these grottos, these clubs and stuff, you still had to kind of like work around these politics to get information and as two young we were nineteen at the time and we just wanted to go and you know, crank and like when you had a trip to go caving in this case you you needed to get combinations because in many parts of the country caves are locked up and the bureaus of land management or the forest service whoever owns the land generally defers management to these clubs these grottos and so you had to like do all these hoops to get combinations and you had to the big thing that always drove us nuts is you had to post your trip so if we wanted to go into a certain cave You had to post it, and anybody who wanted to come along could come along. Mm. So, you know, imagine that you're going to go and do, you know, some 512 route in the black, and all of a sudden, like, (laughs) you know, Duder that climbs 5'8 is suddenly like attached to your trip. You have to bring him. Yeah, and you have to bring him, (laughs) or else you can't go and get the keys to the castle. And literally, that's what it was kind of like, where the two of us, or us with Jim Erickson, who was totally like manic, like we were you know, we wanted to go rage in some cage for cave for 12 hours to go all the way to the back of it and come back out or 13 hours or 16 or however many hours it took us to do our trip. And then all of a sudden, you know, some guy that was like 60 and, you know, had bad knees was on our trip. And we were like, oh, okay, well that just, I mean, you can imagine what that does to your like plans for the trip. So as young guys, like we couldn't handle it. We just couldn't handle it.
1: That sounds awful.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and that's the case with, all these caves, you know, once you get into the really hard caving, you're not just you don't just get to go caving. Like if I want to go into Letygea Cave, I don't I don't get to just walk up and open the door and drop in. You know, right. there's all this stuff you have to go through a lot of times to get on these expeditions to go on these right, on these right. trips. So
1: yeah, I think that there's uh, with the the Verikovina and the Krubera, it's all it's all being explored by just one Russian caving club. Right, and um, and they kind of have the, as you said, the keys to that castle. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure
0: the the government or whoever's dealing with it is just like, okay, yeah, you guys are in. We don't have to worry about you. Right. We, and, and I mean, it makes sense because a they're very fragile right. a lot of times. Right. So you can't just have like, you know, Joe Gumby coming in with you know a flashlight and you know his his hard hat from work. And the truth is, is I've always always was in fact amazed at some of the wild caves where there aren't gates on them, like. You could be in there a few hours and all of a sudden you'd come across beer cans. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Are you serious? Like, you know, a couple like Joe Blow Rednecks like crawled all the way in here <laughs> to drink beer. And then, you know, it's like they went through a hell of a lot to get in here and have a couple cold ones, you know, inside of this cave. So I get it. Like, completely. bro,
1: there's a bar, right? Down yeah. Down the
0: street. <laughs> so yeah, and it would be like, All right, you guys, I know why these things are locked up. And then A lot of them have a very fragile ecological environment inside of them, in terms of you know down to like a a microbiology level of you know having to maintain uh, certain air quality, having to maintain certain air pressure. Like the Lechuguilla Cave has a cap on it, and you open it up and go in and close it, so that the, the the pressure kind of remains the same because air movement messes up these crazy crystals and all these sorts of things. So it's completely reasonable that these things are locked up and right. that, like, yeah, that the general sense. public can't go into them. But like I said, as a 19 year old kid, it was kind of like, you know, I couldn't handle that.
1: Like, yeah. Yeah. You just wanted to go. Yeah. Everything that you're saying just kind of is deterring me from wanting to be a caver. So if, uh, if there's any value in this discussion, that was it.
0: The analogy to climbing does kind of end when you start doing it. Right. Other than the exploration thing, the first ascent kind of thing is it's a completely different animal. Uh, You, you know, it's, it's, it's physically demanding in that exhaustion sense of the word. Um, It's physic. it's mentally demanding. You know, the darkness is utter and complete and you, you actually would be hard pressed to find a time in your life when you were in that kind of darkness because Mm you know, even being in your closet or whatever, it's like, there's still a little bit of light and, uh, yeah, it's certainly not for everybody, but, um, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I just didn't, the community at, at the time, I just kind of rejected it, but I'd, I'd go back in a cave. Is that what
1: you tell your son when you turn the lights off yeah. at night? <laughs> the darkness is utter and complete. Good, Good night. night.
0: If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast, or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com.